1: My only
2: object in being here is to try and get at the truth. Where shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. could have been a contender. Fasten yourself. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with
1: a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm going to make him an awful deal. All real men. Love is, is love. too weak a word. it. I, 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 I loathe you. Why I, you, I,
2: love not you. I, I love
3: you. <laughs> 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 I did as you saw. Don't
2: let me. If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV! let it and validate Remember that's what you told me! It's time, Robbie!
3: Welcome to the Next Best Picture Podcast. And
2: the Oscar goes to Green Book.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 144 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. And on this day, May 26, 2019, at 1148 a.m., I am being joined here by... Will Mavety. Hi. Wait, Will. This, that's the wrong. That's the wrong podcast, man.
0: I get mistake I get mixed up. <laughs> I can't move on.
3: <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to move on, but I don't think I will ever move on. Ah, uh, but for this show, we must do our best. Michael Schwartz. Well, I can't top that one. You know, that's all Will. That's fair. Casey Lee Clark. Hello, hello. Tom
2: O'Brien. Hey, everybody.
3: All right, everyone. So for this week's show, we are talking about the Cannes Film Festival. The festival has just recently wrapped up. The awards have been handed out. We're going to be doing a deep dive into everything that went on over there. And then we're also going to be doing some housekeeping. We'll talk about some trailers. We're going to talk about uh, the polls. And we're going to answer some fan questions as well. But to start things off here... Let's ask everyone what they caught up on this week, either at home or in the cinema. Will, let's start off with you first.
0: I actually saw it a couple weeks ago, but book smart. And obviously people aren't going to see it like they should because it underperformed at the box office. So please do.
3: You know, that's such a disheartening thing. I I, I can't believe that... With all of the critical support and everything that we've been all doing online to try and get people to see it, that even the film's director Olivia Wilde has to take to Twitter to essentially beg people to go see this movie. And I mean, let's face the facts. You know, it's 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 a very unfortunate thing when a film that is written, directed, starring uh, women, if it doesn't do well at the box office, it could then impact uh, the you know other features to get greenlit. And, you know, I I, I don't know, man, like, I I really, really had high hopes for this, that people were going to turn out to the theaters to see it. And I don't know what the disconnect there was.
0: Well, we talked about a little bit off air that a, we do kind of live in a film Twitter bubble, where all of our hundred or so people we interact with on film Twitter are really excited about this film. But the word may not have gotten out to the tens of thousands who are comprised of the movie going public.
3: Yeah, I, I guess there is some truth to that. I mean, I would ask everyone, you know, to maybe look inward and ask themselves, what can I do to best support this movie outside of that bubble? Are there friends that I could invite along with me? Are there family members I could talk to about it? You know, whatever it might be. Uh, I don't know. I don't have an answer necessarily, but I would ask those that feel very, very passionately about not just this movie, but also, to what it represents if it does do well. Like, what else could we be doing to help... The industry in this way, because if we don't do something, then Disney really is going to just take over everything. I mean, Aladdin made, what, over $100 million this weekend?
1: Yeah, it looks like it.
3: (sighs) Like, it's the same shit all the time. Disney ruling the box office, top 15 highest grossing films of the year, all Disney. You know, well, this might be an over-exaggeration, but you get my point.
0: Well, and what's interesting is, you know, the Wall Street Journal last June had an article about how for the last, like, five, six years the box office results for theatrical comedies just keep getting worse and worse till in 2017, we only had one comedy girls trip break a hundred million. And it just seems like ultimately with good comedy content on streaming and TV like Veep and Barry and the fact that there's typically not much about a comedy that screams, Hey, go see me on a big screen that, everything seems to be heading for comedies the same way that the mid-budget adult drama went in the early 2000s, which is that it's all going to streaming, they're just not making that kind of movie because audiences don't care to see it in theaters, and it's not just book smart, you know, it's um, long shot and, well, basically any straight comedy, straight up comedy that has come out this year. So it it seems like that's a pretty clear trend where before long, you know, comedies will be yet another thing like mid-budget dramas that is a byproduct, is a product of an older age we don't see
2: anymore anymore and and what worries me is we've got some very very highly regarded comedies coming down the pike in a few weeks i'm thinking particularly of late night with emma thompson and mindy kaling and uh, the farewell with aquafina and um, this is this is not a great omen i just i just hope people wise up soon and just just uh, patronize book smart
3: yeah
4: maybe it'll be a word of mouth thing i mean i had people like from home and school and things like that messaging me after i'd seen it being like oh i was planning on seeing that is it good blah 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 and i'm like that's why i keep posting everywhere that i saw it and how great it is to hopefully get like because i feel like i'm definitely the demographic for that movie so i think that like definitely girls and people my age should definitely see that
3: well casey uh you actually did get a chance to see it this week right
4: yeah i saw it last night um loved it i feel like it's maybe my favorite movie of the year so far as far as like what I enjoyed the most, like I was ready to rewatch it the second I left the theater. I saw so much of myself and those girls. I was definitely that like nerdy girl that was uncool and like, you know, didn't really go to many parties until my senior year and was kind of like, didn't really know what I was doing. Cause I wanted to get into good colleges. Um, and yeah. And I just found it so funny and I found it so surprisingly cinematic in the way that it was directed and edited and, the soundtrack was so incredible. And I just think it was the perfect movie for me and for the things that I like and my sense of humor and my own personal journey. So I think it was great.
3: Nice. Nice. Did you see anything else this week besides that? Um,
4: I went to a, at my local film society, they do 35 millimeter screenings of classic films once a month. And so I went and saw Charlie Chaplin city lights, which I've started seeing some Chaplin films in recent years, but that was one that I hadn't seen yet. So it was so great to see that on the big screen And like with a packed theater, which always warms my heart when people try to see classic films on the big screen, which is something that I try to do, especially with stuff that I just haven't seen before, because I think that's probably the ideal way to see them. So it was just really great.
3: There's a reason he's one of the all time greats.
4: Absolutely. I was. Yeah, it was great. And it was nice to see a wide variety of ages because those films are very appropriate. So you could you saw I saw people taking like their kids and grandkids and stuff. and That was just really nice.
3: (sighs) That gives me hope.
4: Yeah.
2: (laughs) Uh, Tom, what about you? Uh, I've been a little under the weather this weekend, so I, I haven't been able to see any of the new uh, the new big stuff. But uh, I did uh, earlier in the week see a film from India that uh, is called Photograph. Uh, it's uh, directed by uh, uh, Ritesh Batra, who did a very, very good and popular Indian romantic comedy a couple of years ago called The Lunchbox. This one has uh, a plot that is, sounds very close to uh, the farewell, which will be coming up. But uh, nonetheless, it, it has an enormous bit of charm about a uh, photographer who takes pictures of tourists in Mumbai, and who uh, happens to take a picture of a very beautiful young woman who's very nice and very taken by uh, by him. And when uh, he learns that his grandmother is coming to visit, uh, the. Uh, the, uh, the pressure that has been put on him to get a fiancé uh, has been uh, very uh, heavy. And so he deci- he asked the woman to be, pose as his fiancé, and together they have a lovely time with the grandmother. It's not it's not a very uh, uh, deep film. Uh, it's a charmer. And uh, so you may be in the mood for a charmer. And if it comes to your town, you know, give photograph a try.
3: All right. Very nice. I did see some uh, advertisement for that, and I uh, was considering checking it out. So I, I think I might have to know it's a pretty good recommendation. Michael, what about you?
1: Yeah, so no movies for me this week, but I have continued watching Fosse Verdon on FX.
4: Yes.
1: With its second-to-last episode. I know Casey and I are big fans of this show. So finale is next week. Catch up if you haven't seen it yet. have to give a shout-out to Michelle Williams, who is giving one of the best performances I have seen this decade film television theater performance overall she is just absolutely incredible as gwen verdon nailing the mannerisms the voice it's a total transformation she deserves every award under the sun and i can't wait to see what the final episode has in store so bossy verdon catch up if you haven't seen it you know you have eight episodes to dive right into
3: all right, and then for me this week, uh, I saw I saw quite a lot, actually. Um, I, first, I'll start off with uh, two very dark films that I saw, uh, one in theaters, one at home on Netflix. I saw a film called The Art of Self-Defense, uh, starring Jesse Eisenberg, where he plays a uh, weak uh, young man who... Uh, you know, he like has this like little dog. He listens to like French and, you know, he's just not the kind of guy that would really like stand up for himself. He gets mugged and he ends up then taking uh, karate self-defense lessons with Alessandro Nivola as his sensei. And the film goes in pretty unexpected directions. It gets very, very dark with its humor. And it was a movie that it might have been a little too cruel for me at times. It definitely stretched my threshold a bit too much, but I think that there is definitely a lot of people out there that really dig its look at toxic masculinity and some of the other commentary that it puts forth. So if you like dark comedies, uh, Art of Self-Defense. And then the other film that I was referring to there is uh, something called The Perfection, starring Allison Williams on Netflix. And that movie was, oh God, um... You want to talk about going in directions that you are not expecting. I mean, this movie just kept getting more and more and more fucked up as it went along. (laughs) And by the time we got to the end, I just was, I I have to say, I was really enjoying it. It's a low level investment, uh, only an hour and a half long. Didn't really require much of me to watch it other than to just go along with the wacky turns that the screenplay takes. And, you know, there was a lot of buzz about it online, so I decided to check it out this weekend, and I'm happy that I did. It was definitely um, an, entertaining, uh, <laughs> an entertaining an entertaining, entertaining mindfuck, to say the least. Uh, then I also uh, caught up on a documentary on Netflix that I, uh, you know, I, it takes me a while to usually come around uh, with docs, but I watched uh, Knock Down the House. Uh, about four women who are running for uh, congressional seats uh, in this year's uh, last Democratic uh, primary. And uh, it was very empowering, inspiring, definitely gave me a lot of hope about our current political system that hopefully things can change, uh, especially when it seems like every day uh, there's always something new to criticize or be depressed about in the world of politics. Oh, and if you're listening, fuck you, John Voight. Um <laughs> And then uh, in the theaters, I saw a double feature on Thursday. I went and saw Aladdin, which you can you know listen to my uh, podcast review of Josh Parham to hear my thoughts on that. I was very, very mixed on it, to say the least. And I also saw Brightburn, uh, which... I have to say, I'm just not passionate about it at all. Uh, the premise behind it was really cool. It was, it was awesome uh, in terms of it being, I guess, maybe like an elevator pitch. Hey, like, what if Superman fell to Earth, but instead of using his powers for good, he used his powers for evil, and he discovers this when he's like a preteen boy. I think that that was enough to definitely get a movie built around it, but the film just never goes any further along with that premise, and it was kind of uh, disappointing and underwhelming for me. So, eh, I just shrugged it off, ultimately, in the end. And then, uh, finally, uh, to tie into our uh, big conversation this week, uh, after the news the other day, uh, in regards to a certain uh, Cannes Film Award winner, I decided to revisit Memories of Murder which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. It's Bong Joon-ho's uh, crime thriller that is very heavy on character with a very, very clever screenplay. Uh, the mood is fantastic. Great twists throughout. I mean, if you haven't seen this film, I highly, highly recommend it. And it sounds like his latest film is also a very high recommendation from everyone that has seen it at the Cannes Film Festival. I am, of course, talking about the Palme d'Or winner, Parasite. So, this being uh, Bong Jun hos uh, latest film, this is the director that I said before, he gave us memories of murder. He's also done uh, The Host, Snowpiercer, Ocha, Mother, not not that mother, a different mother.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: This is a guy whose career has, over the last 15 years, been building steady momentum and has now culminated in this huge prize Uh, not only for himself, but also for Korea. It's the first ever Korean film to win the Palme d'Or. And it's also uh, worth noting that Korea has never been nominated uh, for an Oscar in the Best International uh, Film Category, previously known as the Best Foreign Language Film Category. And it looks like possibly with not only this win, But also, too, a little bit of a social media uh, bump. Uh, Karen Han over at the festival started this hashtag called #BongHive, which definitely seems to have taken film Twitter by storm and is being used to heavily promote uh, this film, Parasite. It it seems to me that we could be looking at an Oscar nomination and maybe win here.
0: So one thing worth considering is part of the reason films like The Handmaiden that did very well with – the precursors and seem like they could have easily been international film nominees is that their home country just for whatever reason chose something else that was not as popular and not as likely to get nominated. And there is a perfect possibility that come this October or whenever Korea decides to submit something entirely different because of internal politics and kind of shoots those chances in the foot. Um, Hopefully that doesn't happen, but, you know, that category is ripe with the tradition of countries choosing a random submission instead of the one we expect. So we also have to look at maybe since he is so well-known and well-liked and has worked with actors in the U.S. and because the Academy is becoming increasingly international friendly with last year someone like Powell Likowski getting nominated, is there any chance he can show up in director or screenplay?
3: Mm-hmm. Definitely worth considering. I mean, not, not only with Cold War and Roma doing well, but remember that like that cinematography nomination for Never Look Away? <laughs> you know, it's crazy. So, yeah, I think a lot of stuff is on the table right now in ways that maybe it wasn't before. But Alejandro González-Singarito, the president of this year's jury, said that the vote was unanimous for Parasite, and if you pay attention to what the critics are saying out at the festival as well, it was definitely the clear critic favorite. So it's amazing to me when you stack it up against Bong Joon Ho's other films that he's done. I mean, Snowpiercer is a top ten favorite film of the year for me that uh, of 2014, and uh, a couple of his others are just really, really great. To hear that Parasite might be his best work to date—that's saying something. Because
2: he has he uh, has a very unique uh, uh, style, uh, combining out and out humor with uh social commentary, particularly about class distinctions, uh a thriller element and uh he just wraps up most of his films altogether in that it stands apart from any other filmmaker to my mind on the international scene.
3: Yeah. No, totally agree with you there, Tom. Uh, and, you know, this is a film that we're going to obviously continue to be talking about in the weeks to come. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. It's been picked up by Neon. And from what I've heard, uh, you've heard as well, too, Tom, Neon plans to give it a pretty substantial push.
2: Yes, I, I'm really looking forward to uh, not only seeing it, but seeing what uh, how audiences and uh, uh, the Oscar. Uh, folks uh, really respond to it. It's it's uh, going to be one of the more interesting stories of Oscar 2020.
3: You know, and speaking of other interesting stories that have come out of the festival as well, um, another f- uh, filmmaker who uh, is actually not a stranger uh, to the Academy, he's gotten many nominations for many of his films over the years, is Pedro Almodovar. And it looks like his latest film, Pride and Glory. Pain and Glory? Sorry, Pain and Glory, different film. <laughs> Altogether, a very altogether different film, (laughs) Pain and Glory, this autobiographical uh, film starring Antonio Banderas in the lead role, who won the Best Actor Prize at the Cannes Film Festival. This could be not only a vehicle for Pedro, but really, Antonio Banderas, I've been hearing, is getting a tremendous amount of praise.
1: I'm going to make a prediction on May 26th, 2019, about this movie, that as of today, looking ahead to next year's Oscars, we could pencil in two nominations, one for Antonio Banderas and one for Pedro in screenplay.
0: I mean, it's it's literally about a filmmaker. That's like kryptonite for the Academy.
1: Yeah, th- those two walking in and then maybe you could even tack on director, international film, maybe even score because the film won a music prize over the weekend also at Cannes.
3: Yeah, and Alberto Iglesias has been nominated three times by the Academy before, most recently for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, so it looks like there's something there. Um, you know, it, I look back at last year's festival, and I say to myself, okay, what were the big films that came out of there? Obviously, you had stuff like Black Klansman, don't get me wrong, but just in terms of the international film category, it seemed like Burning, Cold War, and Shoplifters were like the three big ones. and. I think that Pain and Glory, not not Pride and Glory, uh, Pain and Glory could be one of those three big ones this year, along with Parasite, of course.
4: Yeah, and the narrative for Antonio Banderas is definitely there.
3: Yeah, I mean, he's in his mid-50s. He's worked for years in different genres with everybody, you know, domestic, international. He's a star. You know, he's got he's got just a tremendous amount of respect, I feel like. I, I, I could see it happening for sure.
1: And let's not forget, he's also in the new Soderbergh film opening this year with Meryl Streep and Gary Oldman.
3: Oh, yeah, that's Well, everybody's
1: right. in that movie.
0: <laughs> that can only so,
1: help. That, yeah. yeah, absolutely. That can only help his campaign for actor. From what I've heard about that movie, it's a big ensemble piece. Meryl has the showiest part, but it's supporting. So I don't think that's necessarily something we would say, oh, double nominee Antonio Banderas. But yeah, like Tom said, it could only help him.
3: Yeah. Uh, Okay, so then looking over at some more of the uh, winners uh, from the festival this weekend. Uh, So, Palm d'Or went to Parasite. Antonio Banderas won the uh, Best Actor Prize for Pain and Glory. Best Actress went to Emily Beecham for a film called Little Joe, which I admittedly uh, have not heard all that much about outside of her performance.
1: It's about a young presidential candidate running in 2020.
2: Uh, well,
3: the actual plot synopsis I see here Alice, a scientist, creates a genetically modified plant which seemingly causes uncanny changes in other living creatures, co starring Ben Wishaw, Carrie Fox, Kit Connor, and David Wilmot.
4: Yeah, I feel like I had heard like middle of the road mixed things. It wasn't one of those that was like the big story out of the fest. Let's put it that way.
3: No. Sure. Yeah. You know what? You know what was a pretty big story, though? A film that a lot of people actually expected to take the palm. Uh, it ended up instead walking away with a screenplay prize. Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, was something that I heard a tremendous amount of buzz about out yeah. of the festival. Yeah.
4: We're also picked up by Neon, right?
3: Yes, I believe it did. God, they are just eating
0: the festivals alive this year. <laughs> they bought like 11 films at Sundance, and this
2: trend is just continuing. It's crazy. Yeah, the will thing you would see when they release it, uh, because I believe Parasite is set for a fall uh, U.S. release, and maybe they'll hold this until uh, next year. But uh, it, it, the reviews have been so good on Portrait of a Lady on Fire that uh, it's uh, certainly something that's going to be uh, talked about a lot. And with yes. neon behind it, that's great.
0: It's also got the queer poem, didn't it?
3: Yes, it did. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, the first film directed by a woman to do so. Uh, Celine Sciamma. I I, ho- I don't know if I'm saying it right. I apologize if I'm not. Uh, she wrote and directed the film, and it is uh, centered around uh, two women as well. Um, I don't. I have a very very vague plot description, uh, but essentially, uh, oh no, this is a more detailed one. At the end of the 18th century, uh, Mariana, young painter, is commissioned to paint a portrait of a young woman to be used to elicit a mar- uh, marriage proposals, knowing that the woman. Uh, Heloise uh, has previously refused to sit for portraits as she does not want to be married. Marianne disguises herself as a lady's maid in order to gain her subject's trust, only to find herself inadvertently falling in love with her.
2: Ooh. <laughs> it's very interesting that the, in the uh, uh screen daily poll of critics, uh, post con. Um, it uh, Portrait of the Lady on Fire uh, came in second behind Parasite and tied with uh, Pain and Glory as the best film at can.
3: Yeah, I've heard that it's uh, very culturally relevant as well, and it definitely spoke to a lot of people, especially with what is currently uh, going on in our country right now. And I have to you know also assume, being that it is an international film as well, uh, you know, it's also striking a chord with everyone else outside of that. So Uh, That's definitely one that I would keep an eye on as we head into um, the year as well. Uh, What is another one here that I saw? Uh, One of Ann Thompson from IndieWire, one of her favorites, if not her favorite from the festival, was actually uh, Les Miserables. uh, Not to be confused with the 2010 musical film. Uh, But this is a film that was inspired by the riots of 2005 in the Paris suburbs. Uh, It revolves around three members of an anti-crime brigade who are overrun while trying to make an arrest.
1: So they're not going to be singing uh, one day more in this one, I suppose.
3: I highly doubt it in this case. <laughs> uh, so that one definitely uh, got some uh, praise. Uh, Frankie, uh, Ira Sachs' latest film, I've heard is a disappointment. I'm sad
1: to hear about that one. Yeah. 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 I'll probably still see it, but, you know, it didn't get bad reviews. No, so compared good cast. To- Isabelle Huppert. His previous two films, Love is Strange and Little Men, are just such wonderful American independent films. So if this one isn't as good, you know, he's done well in the past, but he's always worth checking out.
2: It is, it'll, be, it'll be seen because Sony Pictures Classics uh, picked it up. His value pair is a big draw.
0: Another one that we need to mention is the, you know, they always have the Pressy, which is the collective critics award from Cannes every year. Uh, and that went to Robert Eggers' new film, The Lighthouse.
3: Oh yeah, this um you know, it's funny I, I always we always categorize uh, certain movies that sound like uh, our cup of tea (laughs) and as soon as I heard that what this was uh you know square aspect ratio 35 millimeter black and white uh two-hander with Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson made by Robert Eggers whose film The Witch was one of my favorites that year I just heard this and I was like yep that is uh, a film from Matt Neglia, through and through
0: (laughs) (laughs) and so Dafoe has both this and Tommaso and he got raves for both with both films getting described as two of the best performances of his career, which is pretty impressive given the role he's been on for the last couple of years. And then he's got the Dee Rees movie coming out later this year. So I think between this collective trifecta this year of acclaimed Defoe performances, we could see a third nomination in a row happen pretty easily for the guy.
3: I've heard that the story goes in very unexpected directions. It plays with a lot of different genres from what I understand. And it gives both actors a lot to chew on. There's like heavy monologuing going on in this one from what I understand. And it definitely further establishes uh, Robert Eggers' uh, talent to us. So I'm very, very excited for that. uh, Genuinely so. A film that I was not as excited about (laughs) heading into the festival. I'm still a little, uh, you know... Skeptical about it, even after it's premiered and it's gotten decent reviews, is the new Terrence Malick film, A Hidden Life, which was picked up by Fox Searchlight for, a, I believe it was about 14, 12 million dollars, something like that. And that raised yeah.
2: The eyebrows, yeah.
3: Yeah, it's three hours long, it's uh, got a mixture of both German and English and Supposedly, I've heard that it's uh, gotten some good comparisons uh, in terms of today's uh, modern political times with the rise of the far right movement and how the story actually, uh, you know, definitely strikes a chord with people in that regard. It just seems like the common complaint that I've been hearing from a lot of people is its length, Uh, which, like I said, at nearly three hours long, even though that this is more of a return to form for Terrence Malick uh, in terms of going back to narratives you know, like Badlands and, uh, um, uh, what the hell was it called? Days of Heaven. You know, this, this uh, I mean, it's still three hours long. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this did not get bad reviews. I've seen some mixed ones, but it's not like the uh, previous Terrence Malick films. Mm-hmm. So even if it doesn't scream slam dunk, Best Picture nominee or anything like that, I do think that Fox Search, Like picking it up and the fall release date will go to give it some strength and maybe the tech categories, maybe another director nomination for Terrence Malick. I don't think this one's just going to go away quietly.
0: Well, Ann Thompson thinks that the Academy is really going to take to it. I know she mentioned it and she, it tends to be pretty
1: good having her finger on the pulse with things like this. Yeah. So
3: even if I'm not putting uh, it in like a predicted
1: best picture lineup at the moment, it's definitely like swimming around there.
3: Sure. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you can't really ever count out Terrence Malick. Um, well, I guess you could for the last couple of years, but <laughs> Tree of Life definitely went a long, long way yeah. to showing that he still has a lot of love, even for something that was um, that challenging of an arthouse film for many people. Uh, two films that got very middle of the road, if we're going to just keep a trend here, uh, Reviews. Um, the Michael, you'll be happy to know. Uh, Ken Loach's film, sorry we, we missed you, uh, didn't really uh, get a rapturous uh, reception at the festival. And neither did uh, Jim Jarmusch's new film, The Dead Don't Die, which we covered uh, last week when it premiered.
1: The Dead Don't Die, but they play in competition. <laughs>
3: Uh, never, uh, going uh, down the list a little bit more here so we mentioned Les Miserables before which did pick up the jury prize but it also shared it along with this film that I hadn't heard anybody talk about at the fest but seeing it win the prize here uh, definitely raised my eyebrow and that was a, it was called ba- I am gonna. I hope I'm saying this right Bakura Bakura anyone got anyone have a uh, interpretation of that one
4: <laughs> you're probably about that <laughs> yeah.
3: so from what I understand it's a Brazilian Western
4: ooh
3: let that sink in and it's got a pretty good uh rating so far 88 on ron tomatoes uh the the pulled uh quote here for the consensus is formally thrilling and narratively daring uh Bacurau, uh by god i know i'm saying it wrong draws on modern brazilian sociopolitical concerns to deliver a hard-hitting genre blurring drama
4: yeah i've heard it was cool yeah
3: yeah, so we're looking at uh, potential foreign film contenders. Uh, that's definitely one to, to keep our eyes on and see where it goes from here as well. If I remember correctly, though, and I could be wrong in saying this, I think that was picked up by Netflix.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that was a Netflix one.
3: Yep. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. no. Uh, it doesn't look like they did. Oh. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Netflix Netflix didn't pick up this one, actually. I, 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 I misspoke. Netflix actually ended up picking up uh, Atlantic's.
4: Which won the Grand Prix, which is their, like, second place, I
3: guess you Right. could uh, So, Atlantics. In a suburb of, Dakur, of Dakar, uh that lies in the Atlantic coast, a futuristic-looking tower is about to be officially opened. The construction workers have not been paid for months. One night, the workers decide to leave the country by sea in search of a brighter future. Among them is... Suleiman, the lover of Ada. However, Ada is betrothed to another man. Days later, a fire, uh, a fire ruins Ada's wedding and a mysterious fever starts to spread. A- Ada is unaware uh, Suleiman has returned. Uh, this is a French film? No. Sen- Senegal.
2: Or, uh, it's co- a co production of uh, France, Senegal, and Belgium.
3: Hmm. And then the consensus on this one says an unpredictable supernatural drama rooted in real world social commentary. Atlantic suggests a thrillingly bright future for debuting filmmaker uh, Maddie Diaz.
4: And if I remember correctly from reading about it, this was the first woman of color to win a major prize at Cannes. Is that, or at least this specific one? Is that?
3: You know, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely heard some rumblings about that as well. I can't remember if it was uh, in general or if it was specific, but yes, definitely a first though. Um, and then something I kind of, I, I overheard a lot of people kind of just rolled their eyes a little bit. Uh, the, Dar- the, the Dardenne brothers uh, won the Best Director Prize for Young Ahmed, which, okay.
4: <laughs> that kind of feels like when Xavier Dolan won a couple years ago, and there's that, that gif on Twitter of him crying, and then Mads Nicholson just being like, what?
0: <laughs> Speaking of, of uh, <laughs> Xavier Dolan, his new film is apparently actually pretty good after a couple of you know, very disappointing. Can efforts. It sounds like. What's his new one called? Um, God,
3: I I, I forgot.
1: Maxine. Yeah, apparently it's actually pretty good and returned to form for him. Good. He and he and Terrence Malick got together and sort of had a brainstorming session. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> hey, Will. You know what's actually really funny? Uh, something I found out the other day. I I had overheard uh, that. <laughs> I can't believe this is true. I overheard that Wounds played a can. I know! Oh, my God! Oh, it's because <laughs> oh, man.
0: Shadow is so good. Guys, uh, for those who haven't seen it, one of the best unintentional comedies I've seen in years. My theater could not stop laughing. The problem is it's a deathly serious horror film.
4: Was that exactly. the one with Army Hammer yeah. and Dakota Johnson? Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, man. It is so funny.
4: <sighs>
3: so, um, Rock a Man played out of competition. Uh, we talked about that last week on the show. Uh, it opens up this weekend. And yes, I will officially announce it now. That will be our podcast review this weekend instead of Godzilla. All right. All right. Y'all happy now? <laughs> Yay. Yay. <laughs> uh, and then ending it off with uh, what was definitely a big topic of conversation this week. A little filmmaker by the name of Quentin Tarantino and his latest film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which got good reviews, okay, but there was other news that followed uh quentin this week and sparked up a lot of debate hello everyone this is jd from the in session film podcast each week we
4: review the latest from hollywood california
3: well yes brendan we also give top three lists okay yeah thanks again brendan additionally you can hear
4: us talk other movie news trailers varying movie series or other interesting film related topics and even rants and raves of the week
1: that's correct brendan on top of our main show every Friday
0: you can also hear our extra film podcasts good job Brendan thank you JD it's my goal
1: to make you proud you're the father after all (laughs) yes and I'm very proud Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film podcast on iTunes Stitcher SoundCloud or at InSessionFilm.com
0: Brendan will you please let me complete just one nope Oh, for heaven's sake. Listen to the In Session Film Podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not ki- how this works, sir. Hey, no, you, you, no, no, no. you go
4: cry at Midnight Special again, okay? Oh, okay. That's what you're I, I good will. for.
0: I will. You know
3: what? And I'll do it while pummeling you.
0: I'll do both at the same
3: time. How are you going to pummel me? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't buy it that. That's just how <laughs> it works. So uh, during a press conference, uh, Quentin Tarantino uh, was asked uh, by journalist, uh, female journalist, uh, why Margot Robbie's character in the film had very, very little speaking lines in the movie. Tarantino, uh, I guess sensing that this was an attack... Or a setup to, you know, or I don't even know, but but he presumed and he gave an answer uh, that, you know, the headline said he snapped. I don't think that it was necessarily a snap, quote unquote, but he did say, well, I reject your hypothesis. And he said it just like that. And I did think it was rude. I did think that it was not a well-thought-out uh, response, and I understand if he got, you know, wild up. I, I get that aspect of it, but at the same time, he's been doing this for how many years now? He should be pretty well-trained on how to behave during uh, Q&As and interviews, uh, and then Immediately preceding that response, Margot Robbie actually uh, gave a really detailed and good response to the question uh, that, you know, really, really saved the moment. But then Quentin decided that he was going to cancel all of her interviews after uh, this press conference. It cast a really bad shadow over what should have been. A great week celebrating a return to form, uh, not just for him, but also uh, for welcoming back Leonardo DiCaprio, who's been gone for the last four years. Brad Pitt is said to be absolutely fantastic in it, and both actors are utilized by Quentin for their movie star Um, you know, their, their movie star quality, which is something that's been missing in movies these last couple of years and was really celebrated by a lot of critics at the festival. And it's just really unfortunate that this filmmaker, uh, you know, Quentin, he just continues to put his foot in his mouth and, you know, shoot his foot or whatever you want to say about his foot. The guy likes feet, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where I'm like, you know, you, you have your critics you, you know what they're going to try to do to you. You, you know, it's like I, I, I get if his ego is that big that he just doesn't give a shit. But I think he should.
4: <laughs> I think you know, we're
1: going down a slippery slope here. And this is just me speaking. I don't want to speak for anyone else on the show. I think we're going down a slippery slope in this question from the New York Times where they are almost trying to create the version of the movie they had wanted to see or the one they had imagined in their mind than the one Quentin wrote. And just because of this character, I haven't seen the movie, but just because this character apparently doesn't have a lot of dialogue in the movie, I think they're using that as an excuse to take out their already sharpened knives to go after him, as they've been waiting to do for some time, it seems to me.
3: But I also think it's a fair criticism if I want to just counterbalance that a little bit.
1: Well, we... I feel like he could have done any small or made any small misstep, and there would have been a big explosion. Hmm. And I think this might be, again, without having seen the movie, I could change my mind when I actually see it in late July. That it seems like they're going after him for a reason that, you know, doesn't affect the film overall.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, an ensemble piece with, uh, you know, Emile Hirsch, Kurt Russell, Al Pacino. There's all these different speaking roles in the film. Uh, you know, Luke Perry in his final appearance. And, you know, from what I understand, like a lot of people get very, very, very tiny minutes. Precious minutes. To make an impact in the film, it's really all centered around Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt.
1: And a lot of them are big stars in those cameo appearances. And I think a lot of people had it in their mind that Margot Robbie was going to be a lead player or at least a big supporting player in the movie. And even... She might have the smaller part, smaller than people imagined. And that's what's contributing to this.
3: It looks like Quentin just kind of, you know, from what I can tell here, lumped her in with Timothy Oliphant, uh, Margaret Qualley, Al Pacino, Damian Lewis, Bruce Stern, and all these other name actors that are just not getting the same level of attention that the screenplay offers to Pitt and DiCaprio.
4: Well, no, I think and I also saw the um, a comment on Twitter about how, like, Sharon Tate was a quiet woman. Like, she was a very soft-spoken person. And so, I like, somebody kind of, not necessarily defending Tarantino, but, like, that's actually who she, like, she might have a lot of screen time, maybe not as many lines, because that's, she didn't talk as much. I don't know if that's, you know, maybe something to make a note of in comparison to what the types of characters that DiCaprio's playing in it. I don't know. I think that's, and I also, again, we all haven't seen it. I think that's a big point, and it's hard to really talk about this, when like all we can really comment on, I guess, is how he handles himself with press interviews. That's kind of right. It.
1: I
3: think that's the bigger thing
1: here. Yeah, and for ingredients prestigious as the New York Times can be, let's not act like they're above clickbait and stirring the pot.
0: In part, I think part of it was part of what led to such an explosion was the way the interview was phrased in the coverage they gave it, with like Quentin Tarantino snaps and. You know, like it it definitely added fuel to the fire of him already kind of putting his foot in his mouth.
3: Yeah. Like I said, it, he he definitely has a troubled uh, background in how he's handled uh, the press before. And this just did him no favors. And, it, you know, it, it reminds me of like uh, another person who had controversy at the Cannes Film Festival. It reminds me of like Lars von Trier, uh, the year he had Melancholia and uh, K- Kirsten Dunst was receiving a tremendous amount of praise for that film and the film itself got good reviews and Lars von Trier just, you know, did something stupid mm-hmm. during the uh, Q&A. And <laughs> it's like, that's all everybody well, could talk about, Ben. I think they're about, on ben. different levels, though. Oh, I'm, no, 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 I, I understand. I understand what you mean. But at the same time, I think that there is uh, the same conversation of separating the uh, artists from the art and how far are we willing to take that at a certain point. Um I don't know. It, it's it's tricky. It's, it's tricky, like you said. Interesting
0: to see. I think in you know as we do get more into a place where the artist and the art, uh, in many ways, are one and the same. There are a lot of these filmmakers who've been able to get away with being dicks because their their product has always kind of been viewed separately. And I think. Tarantino has been a situation of the other shoe waiting to drop for a long time. And yeah, I I, I don't know, man. I kind of feel like we might be entering the era where you can't be a dick.
3: (laughs) It sounds pretty simple, doesn't it?
0: (laughs) Like, like honestly, I mean, I think he and there are others who are like him in that they just generally can be kind of badly behaved.
3: Well, let's look at it this way. The guy's only going to make one more film after this, and then he's done, he's supposedly. So he does.
0: So he's. He <laughs> we'll yeah. see about that. Yeah, yeah, the same way Daniel Day-Lewis retired. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs>
3: uh, another thing, too, I wanted to say as we close up this discussion about the Cannes Film Festival, you know, one thing I've heard a lot about this year, uh, especially from a lot of uh, colleagues of mine that I'm pretty friendly with on film Twitter who attended, is that it seems like the badge process... Uh, for getting into seeing stuff is just absolutely horrendous. And I want to just extend my sympathies to anyone that might be listening that was there that waited three hours to see, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or whatever they might have waited for and didn't get in. In These are people who write for very prominent publications, and it's like, uh, that's, I I, I don't know. Uh, You know, one of the things that when the review started dropping for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a lot of people were very, very quick to say, where are all the uh, person of color and female uh, reviews for this film? And I definitely think it opens up a much broader conversation about the Cannes film film festival in general and how they structure things.
2: It
1: wouldn't be Cannes without some controversy. I mm-hmm. mean,
3: <laughs> all right. So moving on from that, now let's talk about a trailer this week. Let's look forward to the future here. Let's see what we got coming out on the horizon. Uh, first and foremost, I want to talk about a trailer that dropped a new film from Jennifer Kent. The follow-up to The Duck, which we've been waiting for for a very long time. Two of us on this podcast have already seen this movie. It's called The Nightingale. Let's take a look.
2: Sing a song. The one for me.
0: I wish I
2: were on yonder hill. We don't want no trouble. That's just the way, isn't it? You don't want trouble, but sometimes trouble wants you
3: there I'd sit and cry my
4: get me to the soldiers that came by this morning
3: It's too dangerous Up north they kill us You sure you want to follow him? They close. What are you doing? I don't want no trouble.
2: I'll sell my rock, I'll sell my wheel
4: Sell my only spinning wheel You know what it's like to have a white fella take everything you have, don't you? To buy my love
3: a sword of steel
2: what's your name again Claire
3: I'm not your boy I'm mangana the blackbird
4: I wish I wish I wish in vain you white ones go fast 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 get nowhere I go slow I wish I had my love again that the bird thought she was going to die out there in the forest. <laughs> Suddenly, she was free.
3: All right, Well, let's refrain. Let's pass it off to those who haven't seen the film yet. What do you all think of this trailer?
2: I think this is, a, is an extremely effective trailer because it when it begins it leads you to think it's one kind of period piece and then it gets crazy and that's just the kind of I like for a film like this mm-hmm.
3: not all at once
4: uh, I mean yeah no it looks it looks really interesting I I feel like I almost would need to know a little bit of spoilers going in because I feel like I have a threshold as far as like because I've heard this film is incredibly gruesome and Whatever I don't
3: let me don't, let me let me let me help you out with that a little bit here. Gruesome, not the right word I would use to describe it.
0: Brutal, but not gruesome.
4: Okay. Okay.
3: Um, this might be the most brutal movie I've ever seen.
4: Yeah, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can can handle that. <laughs> I don't know if that reaches my threshold.
3: You, you do you know like how when you watch something like. Schindler's List or 12 Years a Slave, the brutality of that film like really shakes your soul yeah. and sinks its claws into your heart. This is
0: more so, I would say. Yeah. It's very unflinching.
3: It's, it's uncompromising. And I, I have to commend Jennifer Kent for being so bold and daring to actually do that with this because there is a much, much, much larger message that she's conveying through this story, both on a micro and a macro level that I, I really responded to. Um, Will and I talked about it extensively after uh, we both saw it at Sundance. I mean, it's the kind of film that definitely warrants a tremendous amount of conversation afterwards. Mm. And, It's long, too. I mean, Will, I remember we were talking, this film could have afforded to lose like 15 minutes or something along those lines, at least. it's
0: deliberately made to be a tough watch, not just in the violence on display, but also it's extremely slow, and it's it's deliberately made to be extremely tedious. And, you know, as such, it's going to be a tough sell with audiences.
3: I will say this, though. Aisling uh, Frantiosi, uh, who... Oh, amazing. She she plays actually Lyanna Stark on uh, Game of Thrones, and uh, this is gonna this is gonna bl- blow up her career, I'm sure. And also, um, if those that are those that are wondering, I'm not the biggest Sam Cla- uh, Claflin f- fan, uh, but this might be, uh, in my opinion, I think this is also his best performance to date. Well,
0: that's good. I would agree; he's fantastic. Very different from the type of role we usually see him in. I mean, he's he's a villain and an
2: evil one at that. So, yeah, that's exciting. I, I'm just. Uh, I didn't get a sense of brutality from the trailer, and well, it yeah,
3: they might be, fair. they might be hiding that a little bit because yeah. they don't want to scare people away. No, but I mean, they had paramedics on standby at our screenings in uh, in Sundance after um, uh, reportedly people were uh, fainting uh, during the screenings. So, I think actually during our screening, will didn't somebody actually? Uh, I don't. Well, somebody had a
0: seizure. I don't think that happened because of the contest. I mean, I think <laughs>
3: just just it just it just got brought on. Alright, so now, uh, what I want to do now is I want to go over the polls really quick. Uh, we were talking earlier about our, uh, our friend Guy Ritchie. Um, I say friend because, you know, I'm not really a big fan of his. As I've made mention a couple of times now, I'm going to just keep on saying that. <laughs> but last week's poll, we were asking everyone which was their favorite Guy Ritchie film. So out of all the films that he has directed... Uh, What do you guys think won out the poll here? I'm really curious to know uh, what you guys think. Snatch?
0: Lock, stock, and two smoking barrels.
3: Is it going to be King Arthur? (laughs) (laughs) Is it going to be Sherlock Holmes? Maybe. Aladdin, maybe?
2: Well, Sherlock Holmes has probably had the biggest audience.
3: Yeah. Leading the way in first place is The Man from Uncle.
0: Ooh. Well, that's not Uh, a bad film. Pretty
3: underrated. Then in second place is Sherlock Holmes. Third place is Snatch, which I thought was going to win. And then in fourth place, we have Lockstock and Two Smoking and Barrels. And then fifth place is Rock and Rolla.
0: Well, I'm glad to see King Arthur is nowhere near there.
3: Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Now for this week's poll, uh, in the spirit of Rocketman, we are asking everyone which is their favorite performance in a music biopic. So there's a lot of movies to choose from, a lot of performances, both male and female. There's a lot to go around here. I mean, hell, our Oscar winner last year, Rami Malek for Bohemian Rhapsody, he's on this list. Karen Egerton, he's on this list. I mean, we have Jennifer Lopez and Selena, Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon and Walk the Line, Angela Bassett, Lawrence Fishburne, What's Love Got to Do With It? Sissy Spacek, Cole Miner's daughter. Amadeus. Blaze, The Doors, Get On Up, La Vienne Rose, it's all here. So, you guys tell me. So, do you guys have uh, any favorites that jump to mind? Any performances that you've really, really appreciated over the years in musical biopics? And no, John C. Riley for Walk Hard does not count.
0: Rats. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen it in years, but... I remember at the time being absolutely floored by Joaquin and Walk the Line.
3: I felt felt that way about Jamie Foxx and Ray.
0: Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that since I was in fourth grade, but I remember thinking it was— I know that that performance gets criticized by
1: Film Twitter a lot now, but, I mean, at the time, I thought it was insane.
3: Exactly, yeah. I'm going
1: to tap into the well and name one of my favorites that I don't think you have in the poll, Matt, but it's one of my favorite performances in a musical biopic and that is Kevin Klein in The Lovely. Oh, um, uh,
3: who did he play in that again? Cole Porter. Yes, yes, that's right. Oh, man, that's a film I have not seen in a very, very long time.
1: I'm surprised the reception that movie received. It was 15 years ago, which is hard to believe, but he and Ashley Judd both received Golden Globe nominations, and I think they should have been right there in the Oscar conversation. They are absolutely tremendous in that movie, and the way it plays with Cole Porter's life almost reminds me of how I met in Man doing it, it takes his songs and puts them in sort of a performance style in the this-is-your-life type of scenario.
3: Well, speaking of a performer that should have been in the Oscar conversation, I don't know if this is necessarily my favorite, but I just want to pay special mention to Paul Dano in Love Love and Mercy. Mercy.
1: Oh, so good. He's terrific, but John Cusack also is giving best performance he's given recently in that movie.
3: Oh, I agree with you. Absolutely. I, I just think Paul Dano deserved a hell of a lot better uh, for that performance.
0: I feel kind of weird saying this in light of recent events.
3: I didn't include him on the poll for this reason. Yeah. But I, yeah, I, I thought about it too, Will. I did. You could say it. It's okay. It's it's in the past. <laughs> yeah.
0: I Back in 2015, I was extremely impressed by Jason Mitchell and Straight out of Compton yep. and really wanted him to get nominated. And it's been yep. very disappointing to hear that He's apparently behaved so badly that he's been dropped by his agent and most of his uh, most of the roles he's been in. He was a very promising actor, and I'm sorry to hear that his character is not equal to his strength as an actor. Because... Yeah, it's while, very while we're very a
1: upsetting. Problematic uh, performers in musical biopics. There was.
3: Oh, I know where you're going with this one yeah, too. Uh, there was... <laughs> I left this one off the list too. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad he
1: did. And not many people know the movie. It's that he did a good job giving a performance terrible person apparently but gives a good performance in 2004 kevin spacey directed and starred in a movie called beyond,
0: beyond
3: the sea, sea. Mm-hmm.
1: which you know forget all the terrible terrible things kevin spacey has done he is a very good bobby darren
3: i am i am going to say yes and i'm going to just remind people that there was a write-in option for these reasons
2: <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a better note better people I would like to uh, give a shout out to two of the women on the list, uh, Marion Cotillard in La Bien Rose and Angela Bassett. In What's love got to do with it? Two tremendous yeah. dramatic performances in in a in, in, in a musical genre. In it's, I still am impressed to this day
4: by both of them. Yeah, Marion yeah, Cotillard is my pick. I it's been a very long time since I saw that movie, but even just from like little things I've seen of it over the years and like Oscar clips and whatnot I you know the range that she had to show in that and playing Edith Piaf over the course of many years and I remember one time watching some YouTube video of like actors talking about their favorite performances of the 21st century so far and somebody was talking about that one and how the way that she played her when she was older and how she like despite having the makeup and all the things she like made her body and performed in a way of looking young which is how I think people should like (laughs) play older people of like her wanting to be younger, even though she's not, it was just a way of like, I I just had, remember it left a big impression on me at a very young age. So
3: I would go so far as to say that it's easily one of the best performances of the decade. And it might be one of the best performances I've ever seen.
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She's incredible. I remember when I first saw that movie, it was on DVD around the time that she won the Oscar.
4: I think I saw it on VHS. (laughs) <laughs> like one of the last
1: wow. VHS. Yeah, there's a quote at the bottom of the VHS slash DVD case from uh, New York Times. And I remember, I'm looking at it right now. It says, the most astonishing immersion of one performer into the body and soul of another ever encountered in a film. And I don't think that's hyperbole. No.
0: Yeah, I remember that year uh, a lot of people talked about that they felt that the two acting winners would go down in history as two of the best in film history. Between that and Day Lewis, and there will be blood. Yeah, what and a and you have a Javier Bardem as well. Yeah. yeah.
3: I- can't argue with any of this.
0: I'm so intrigued to see this year if we get another one of these in the form of Judy Garland later this year with Renee Zellweger. I mean, she looks pretty transformative in that trailer. Well, I'll,
3: I'll tell you, if Renee Zellweger and Taron Egerton are both able to get Oscar nominations for these uh, performances, then you're going to just see a surge in musical biopics. It's bio already piss. happening.
0: I tweeted we have like 14 coming in the next two years. Like uh, we're having a Journey one coming. I mean, like there, there's a Bunch.
4: Just give me rumors, the story of Fleetwood Mac. That's all I want. That's all I want for
0: all <laughs> forever. Wait, hang on. If, uh, give me just a second. I can pull up the uh, the list I made of, and th- this is like two months ago. We've had more announced since then. I okay. want to try we to write. Right. We have. Okay, here we go. We just had Motley Crue. We have Elton John, David Bowie, Celine Dion, Amy Winehouse, Aretha Franklin, the Bee Gees, Judy Garland, Billie Holiday, Marvin Gaye, and Journey coming up. And Jesus. I'm sure they've announced a couple more since uh, February when I made this list.
3: Who do you cast as Amy Winehouse?
0: Oh, God, I don't, I don't know where to start.
3: Yeah. I was just thinking that when you announced it, I was like, oh, my God, who would I cast as Amy? <sighs> That's crazy. I want
1: an Irving Berlin biopic. Yeah. <laughs> 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 nice. Right. There, there could be something really interesting there. He's a supporting character in The Lovely, but there's something to be said about having a movie right now about a Jewish immigrant who wrote God Bless America. Yeah, that's true. true. Yep. That could really strike a chord.
4: Isn't Bradley Cooper doing the um, Leonard,
1: Leonard, Bernstein. Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein? In fact, he is really getting into character. Casey, I don't know if you've heard this. Yes. Yeah. You, you want to announce need. it?
4: Yeah, yes. it's, I feel like you could actually probably, I, I just read the thing on it briefly, you could probably yeah. explain it better. but the,
1: the Philadelphia Orchestra is doing a performance of Candide over the summer, Leonard Bernstein's uh, Candide. And Bradley Cooper is coming to uh, his hometown, Philadelphia, to play a role in the performance. He's not actually playing an instrument in this performance of Candide, but he's doing some sort of monologue or reading during it with Carrie Mulligan. Wow. So I don't know if he's doing something to get the character. I don't know if Carrie Mulligan is going to be in the movie. I know we have uh, dual uh, Leonard Bernstein movies between Bradley Cooper and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, but it's a hot time for him between those two movies and West Side Story.
3: Yeah. All right. So now moving on uh, to our next part of the podcast here today, head on over to the polls page at nextbestpicture.com. Cast a vote for your favorite musical biopic performance and let us know what you think. We have a second trailer to talk about now. No fate but what we make. Anyone know what movie that's from? That quote? The other guys. (laughs) Terminator 2. And uh, this trailer for Terminator Dark Fate really, really, really wants us to remember that Terminator 2 Judgment Day is an awesome movie. And it's going to explain all of the reasons why here. Produced, not directed, by James Cameron. Directed, though, by Tim Miller, who gave us the first Deadpool film. This is Terminator Dark Fate. Let's take a look.
4: Two days ago, I had this nice, simple life, and now it's a nightmare. stop Who are you? My name is Sarah Connor. i never seen one
2: like you before. Almost human.
4: I am human. Why do you care what happens to her?
2: Because I was her.
4: How do we win we win by keeping you alive
3: okay so uh, full disclosure I'm not a big Terminator fan I do think however that Terminator 2 judgment day is one of the greatest action films of all time Mm -hmm. I think that's indisputable but I'm not a big Terminator fan I, I I'm not I'm not really the biggest fan of the first film I think it's a really cool premise And I think that it's competently well-made given the budget and the time period in which it was made and so on and so forth. Terminator 2 still stands up to this day. It's amazing. And then everything else since then, for me, has just been pure robot trash parts garbage. I, I just, I can't. Now, with this, they really, really, really want us to feel like, don't worry, everyone. We know we've burnt you before these last couple of years, but this time... We're, we're getting our mojo back here. Look, we've got a hot director. We've got James Cameron back in the producer's seat. We've got Linda Hamilton, Arnold Schwarzenegger coming back. And we've got some new stars with Mackenzie Davis, Natalia uh, Reyes, Gabriel Luna. Uh, I mean, it, it really does feel like 20th Century Fox is like doing every, or, and uh, Paramount is doing like, literally everything they can to try to put the fandom at ease here.
1: Well, I've heard this story before, specifically four years ago, when in June 2015, James Cameron sat through a preview of Terminator Genesis and said the franchise has been reinvigorated.
3: Oh, I do remember that. You're right. Oh. And I, I was not a fan of that. That was that was awesome.
1: He also had Arnold Schwarzenegger. So this is not the, some big return of Schwarzenegger. He was only in it four years ago.
0: And uh, Cameron also said that he felt like Terminator Salvation didn't get a fair shake. So that was the exact quote. So I'm not sure that just because Cameron thinks that this one's going to be good and is involved, you know, he
1: it seems like he's willing to stand any Terminator movie. I think Cameron saw that the last one, Genesis, made $440 million at the box office and thought, oh, how can I get on this new one? <laughs> Where's my paycheck?
3: So, writing this film, we've got David S. Goyer, who oh god, yep, uh, exactly, uh, extremely. Uh, I don't even know if I want to say hit and miss. Uh, it's a lot more missed and hit. Let's put it that well, way. He, I mean,
0: he keeps getting gigs because he had like a co-writer credit on Batman Begins. But, like, yeah, he he gave the bare bones of that screenplay, and then. Nolan turned it into what it is, and he's been riding that horse ever since. I mean,
3: he also wrote Dark City, which is pretty damn good. Yeah, um, you know, I'll, I'll give I'll give him the that.
0: Trinity, Batman versus Superman. You know, like,
3: Man of Steel isn't terrible. It's not good, but yeah, I, I digress. Like I said before, more missed and hit to say the least. And then also uh, riding along with him, you have Billy Ray, who has done just going off the list here. Volcano, um, Suspect Zero, uh, Breach, State of Play, which actually was that was good. With Russell Crowe. Hunger Games, which was good. Captain Phillips, which was very good. Yes. And then he's got The Secret in Their Eyes. Oh. And uh, last year, uh, Overlord, Overlord, which uh, was okay. You know, that's like one of those movies, again, where it's like the premise is what's selling the movie more so than the uh, screenplay itself. Uh, so this year he's got uh, this and Gemini Man, which, you know, everyone in Hollywood is working on Gemini Man in the screenwriter's room. <laughs> uh, but, you know, yeah, I just I don't know, man. I don't know. I will see this for the trailer. Linda Hamilton is a badass G. And she rocks it still. I mean, like, it's really, really freaking cool to see her character back.
2: Yeah, I got the same vibe from this as I got when I saw the first trailer to last year's Halloween.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope this turns out better than that did.
2: Yes,
3: yeah, I agree. (laughs) I was not the biggest Halloween fan last year.
1: I think it's probably going to be on par with that.
3: You think that, so, and and just to be clear, uh, because this is what that was then. Halloween last year was a film that paid so much homage to the original and gave fans of the original so much of what they wanted that... It was almost like too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing because you also they also carried over um, some of the more cheesy stereotypical aspects of the 80s uh, slasher genre that, you know, critics like myself are like, this is stupid. Why are characters behaving so stupidly? Why is the dialogue so goddamn cringe cringeworthy awful? <laughs> like, And uh, as a result, I ended up not liking the movie. But for people who this is what they paid to see and they got exactly what they were hoping for, it delivered. So what are we hoping for with Terminator Dark Fate then?
0: Um, I'm honestly, I, I don't think this will end up being particularly good.
3: I really and I think that's, I think that's the point here. I think that like there's not even so much like, like I, I feel like they believe that there is still an audience for this property as long as Arnold is still around. And I just don't know if that's true. Yeah.
1: It's just no. getting sad at this point. He's just, he needs to find a good drama, like an indie drama or a comedy, that big blockbuster comedy. He Maybe he can reinvigorate that genre well, again. Do you remember Maggie? Yeah, I'm not talking Maggie. I'm talking like something that, like... A he little... had good
0: comedic timing, honestly. And like True Lies, things like that, even movies that aren't objectively particularly good, like Jingle All the Way... You know, like that's something I think he would be
1: better served doing. He needs like a Judd Apatow comedy. That's what I'm thinking.
3: Yeah. Kind of play. He's 71 years old at this point. I mean. Or like a
1: supporting part in a Judd Apatow comedy.
3: It would be actually pretty good for him to be utilized in a Judd Apatow comedy in a supporting role, much like uh, how somebody like John Cena is utilized as that hulking, you know, mass uh, macho figure, but, you know, played for played for dumb jokes you know what i mean or let
1: him do a political yeah. comedy or something like that
3: oh god wouldn't that be mad yeah, that'd be so meta <laughs> uh i will say that i'm very very happy to see that mackenzie davis is getting uh more work i'm actually a pretty big fan of hers going back to even uh smashed oh, uh, at the beginning of the decade
1: oh and here's my prediction one more thing about the arnold uh, uh we have a number of avatar films coming he's obviously close with james cameron Schwarzenegger will pop up in an Avatar film before oh, this series is over. Oh, I could definitely see
0: that. He could be the Kanye. new Miles Quaritch. A- oh wait, 5. Miles Quaritch is alive still somehow.
1: He's going to be in the last one. That's what's going to happen.
3: Imagine if there's like one Avatar that has like a huge build of a body, and then it opens up its mouth, and Arnold's voice just comes out of it. <laughs> oh, it's coming. Oh God. Oh man. Lord have mercy on us all, please. Yeah, I, I want to just re- reinforce that this trailer did absolutely nothing for me uh, because there's nothing that I want from this jo- uh, from this uh, property anymore. Yeah. There's no urge. There's nothing that they can do that's going to satisfy me. I mean, if they give me a good action film, sure. But then they need to take that and not look at that as, oh, we need to keep making more. Like, in my opinion, they'll just get lucky. If people happen to like this one. It's you know, been over for 30 years. They just keep trying to bring it back. Yeah. What's interesting
0: right. is um, Terminator has been the rare franchise that, you know, a lot of times male directors can get away with a flop or two and avoid going to director's jail. Terminator has been the rare franchise that pretty consistently since Cameron has effectively put its directors in director jail. Terminator 3, Jonathan Mostow. He did like that surrogates movie with Bruce Willis, but I think that was yeah. McGee McG dropped off the map pretty McG. much. Yeah, And uh, <laughs> Alan Taylor had to come crawling back to HBO and get back on Game of Thrones after he had triumphantly left TV behind. So maybe this uh, spells bad things for Tim Miller too.
3: Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let's cap things off here with some uh, questions from uh, some of our fans. So... We kind of touched upon this a little bit. Maybe there's something that went unsaid. Um, or if anybody wants to elaborate a little bit more, um, I'll be willing to put the question out there, though. Uh, David Mitchell Baker asked, what are your early thoughts on any Oscar prospects for uh, some of the films coming out of Cannes?
0: Well, it kind of covered that.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But was there anything that maybe we didn't say that you feel like should be said? I will say this. I'm no longer predicting Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to win Best Picture anymore. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: No, I don't. I,
0: even know. I honestly don't even think it gets nominated for picture
1: screenplay uh, and a few texts. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I don't I don't even think and I've heard a lot of people say that DiCaprio was fantastic in this. I don't know if this brings him back. He's might be fantastic
1: and funny and entertaining, but it's not a nomination worthy part. Well, and now that he's won, you know, I
0: don't think there's the urgency to acknowledge him. Yeah, the overdue exactly. story is done.
3: I do think that that is a Golden Globe uh, comedy musical performance, sure, maybe. Sure, yeah.
0: SAG Ensemble nomination. Yeah. You know, like, uh, it'll pop up places, just
1: not as a Best Picture nominee or winner. Yeah. And it'll make money. It's going to do probably about 150 I would predict.
3: We kind of touched upon this before a little bit. Uh, once again, maybe just going into a little bit more detail, potentially. Uh, Daniel B. at Film and Sports 21 asks us, um, So, there's been a lack of box office success for Booksmart. Is the theater system broken? That's the question I want to pose. Is the theater system broken?
1: It's, it's not broken, it's just in flux. It's it's one of a lot of factors in people not going.
2: to Things see, are changing. But you know, I don't think it's broken.
4: Yeah.
0: As long as streaming is a viable and affordable option with a wide array of content, it, you know, especially when the alternative of seeing a single movie is in, you know, the cost of a monthly streaming
1: subscription, It's not going to change. When Avengers makes $800 million domestic, it's not broken. It's just... Well,
0: but it's only for a certain kind of movie. I mean, it's the you-gotta-see-it-in-a-theater-type movie. For everything else, it's screwed, but it's not really the theater's fault. You know, the, the budgets required ticket prices to go up, you know, and streaming content was good. We shouldn't punish people for making good streaming content.
3: I mean, I, I do think that theater system is broken in the sense of you have these movie studios that want to keep doing better year over year because that's just a business model and that's the way it works. And so if you are going to try to ensure that, what are you going to do? You're going to green light more projects that you know are a sure thing. So that means more IP-based uh, films, um, more uh, sequels, remakes, You know, things that have worked before in the past, they're going to just keep on doing it over and over. What's going to end up happening, though, I feel like is ticket prices are going to just continuously keep going up because it's like not because they have to, but because the audiences are going to keep going down. So to overcompensate for that and for studios to keep making the money that they're accustomed to making, everything is just going to keep going up.
0: Yeah. 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 No. Absolutely. And as I keep harping on, it's going to be what Lucas and Spielberg predicted years ago, where it's it's an event like going to the theater, to the opera. You get dressed up, you pay a lot of money. There's like six
3: theatrical. But I'm, I'm actually. But I'm starting to wonder something else, though. Well, the alternative side of that, instead of it getting to that point where it gets so big that in order for it to maintain itself, it has to become a luxurious uh, evening out. What if the bubble bursts? And what if we don't even get that far? What if people just stop going? Um, not all like I'm, I'm not saying altogether like nobody's gonna go to the movie theater, but I'm saying it's gonna be like record lows, and people won't even cough up the money to go to these luxurious events, which I'm sure somebody will propose at a certain point, you know.
0: I think as long as there, I mean. It's bread and circus people like lowest common denominator thing with splashy effects and lots of action that appeals to our lizard brain And that's not gonna stop there will always be an audience for a very specific kind of film But I just think there aren't gonna be many of them,
3: you know on a uh, Twitter the other day I was reflecting uh, back on how when I was younger uh, before streaming before a lot of things before the iPhone <laughs> Twitter all this stuff I used to watch a lot more movies at home. A lot. I used to re-watch stuff multiple times. I would go to my local library and rent something I'd never seen before, and it was very, very easy to pick out exactly what I needed to see, and, you know, I, I was working off of a list. I was working off of the IMDb Top 250 and just trying to go down it as much as I could, but there was such a willingness on my part to want to watch more at home, where now, I don't really ever want to watch stuff at home so much. Uh, and I and I know that it's because of a lower attention span. I know it's because of how quickly and how frequently we consume entertainment. And I feel like in order to enjoy entertainment, I have to put myself in a movie theater and like constrict myself, like force myself to pay attention to the screen. So this question from Andrew Purr asks, do you think a physical movie collection is still important in the age of streaming? Uh,
1: we are very split on this here in Next Best Picture. Mm-hmm.
0: There's definitely a compression you get over screening that decreases quality. I mean, a lot of people have talked about part of the reason that there were complaints about the visuals in Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode Prime 3. Prime example. Is because they had to compress some really beautiful visuals to get them out to millions of people. And it does not look nearly as good as it would have on a Blu-ray, almost certainly. I mean, the DPs talked about that, people who really study that stuff have talked about it. That's an example that, you know, and you you get that with most things. I mean, Mudbound, for example, really pretty movie does not look nearly as good uh, when I watch it on my laptop. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was funny when the Game of Thrones episode aired. I like quickly looked over at my physical uh, media collection. I just kind of giggled to myself, like, ha, 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 ha. I knew you would come in handy someday for an <laughs> argument such as this.
0: <laughs> also, the here is the other thing. Eventually, you know, the thing that killed physical media for the most part was because it was so easy to see a massive library of films and TV shows in a single place. But of course, now it's going as we have more and more competing streaming services, they're all pulling content from each other. And like how many times have you been on Netflix and been like, crap, there is just not much on here. I want to see. And I, I do think we're probably going to see that even more where all of a sudden everyone got rid of their DVD and Blu-ray collections and it's a Saturday night. And unless you want to buy every service, you're going to have a hard time finding what you want. Whereas people like Matt who've hoarded, <laughs> their DVDs and Blu-rays can be like.
3: <laughs> no, I, I never have an issue. It, it's great. My roommates, uh, my roommate the other day, he was like, I really want to go see John Wick, but I haven't seen the first two. And, and, and he says, do you have the first two on Blu-ray? Yep, pulled it right out. Here you go. Like and he took library. him to his room and he watched them. It's wonderful.
1: If yeah, yeah, the it's
3: really fantastic.
1: And inclination to watch things at home. I could see why it would still be good to have that. But if you're someone like me who watches maybe two dozen movies at home a year, It just doesn't make sense to have that large of a collection if you're just looking to see the occasional thing.
3: Yeah, no, I I definitely think it – I don't think it's indicative so much of a trend as much as it is uh, what kind of a person you are. Yeah. Yeah. I know that for me, I still have the physical collection for three reasons. Uh, One is because to me, it's kind of like my bookcase. It's like something on display that's like a conversation starter and really just ties the room together, to quote The Big Lebowski. Mm -hmm. Uh, Second reason is to be basically the at-home movie library for friends and family. Uh, and the third reason is whenever we do a podcast review, retrospective or whatever it is, um, I will typically say to myself, "All right, if I can't find this film on streaming, I know I got it right here." You know. Yeah, and
2: and yeah. and you also have access to all that extra stuff.
3: Oh, oh yeah. How can I forget about that? I mean, not as much now, but definitely early on when I was getting into filmmaking and I was in film school, special features on DVDs and Blu-rays were huge for me. Yeah,
4: I'm somebody that watches. As I've, since I've joined MVP and we have the, what movies have you watched this week type of thing here? i I watch a lot of movies at home. That's like my, my thing, especially being a classic film person. And I mean like, yeah, my, every day I'm looking at what I can add to my criterion collection. And I recently got a new bookshelf and it's like my pride and joy. So like, I'm definitely somebody that wants to keep physical media alive. So
3: Casey blue velvet comes out this week on Criterion. Oh,
4: I know. I have <laughs> two Barnes & Noble gift cards just waiting for that July sale. I'm banking on getting so much stuff. I can't wait.
3: Uh, well, uh, that's a good note to uh, leave us out on here t- for today. Uh, anybody have anything else to say before we go? All right. Happy Memorial Day weekend, everyone. Will Mavity, where can they find you on the internet?
1: Find me on Twitter at Mavericks Movies. Michael? On Twitter at mschwartz95. Casey?
4: At Casey Lee Clark.
3: Tom.
2: On Twitter at, at Thomas E.
4: O'Brien.
3: And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 144 of the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts Leave us a comment, rate us five stars, give us some feedback, let us know what we're doing right. We really, really appreciate that, and we also appreciate your support. If you head on over to Patreon for $1 minimum a month, you can get some exclusive podcast content, including some Emmy coverage. Uh, We just recently wrapped up on Game of Thrones. This week we are reviewing Room for our 2015 retrospective, and that will go up this week to get the full review head on over to patreon next best picture one dollar minimum a month thank you so much everyone for listening as always and we shall see you all next time